You know, sometimes it can be discouraging when we pray for folks every day here, every Sunday here at church. We pray for those who are sick, for those who are suffering from cancer. And sometimes it's discouraging because in the broken, fallen world that we live in, often God chooses not to heal them. But every once in a while, God decides to answer our prayers in a miraculous way. And when he does, it's really fun to celebrate. And so it's it's my privilege this morning, my pleasure to get to uh, reintroduce to all of you, David and Wendy Siobhan, if you guys would stand up. We, We have been praying for David for many months. Thank you guys so much. We're so excited to have him back with us. If you don't know David, he's actually our administrative pastor here at the Southwood campus, but he's been on leave of absence for many months because David's been fighting cancer. Um, We're incredibly excited. David was actually back in the office this week, so it's really good. My life is much better now that I have another pastor joining me. David will be working part-time the rest of this fall as he continues to recover his strength. If you're new to Grace Bible Church, if you're a visitor especially, you'll probably be hearing from David. He's really going to be helping us to follow up with our visitors, follow up with our new folks to help get you plugged in and help make Grace Bible Church a home for you. So, David and Wendy, we're really glad to have you back. We're so excited to celebrate their return on this particular Sunday. This is a significant Sunday at Grace Bible Church at the Southwood campus. This is our second ever baptism Sunday. That's that's why this is up there. We don't have a hot tub up here just for fun, just for decoration. We're doing baptisms later in this service. Uh, it's, it's actually a really fitting time to do baptisms with the passage that we're looking at this morning. You can turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Paul is going to unfold for us truths about the gospel in Galatians 3 that are really the truths that we celebrate in baptism. In baptism, we are going to have this morning four of our brothers and sisters in Christ come up here and testify to us, witness to us of their faith in Jesus Christ, witness to us that they believe that that they have been justified, that they have been saved by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's, that's the gospel, that's the truth that Paul wants to reinforce in our minds this morning as we look at chapter 3. Now, actually, our passage this morning, uh, it begins with a bit of a rebuke. Look with me, starting in verse 1. Paul says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, we have a new term, a new idea, a new concept in this passage that we haven't looked at much in Galatians yet, the Spirit. Obviously, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, when Paul wanted to refer to our salvation in chapter 2, and he'll do it again in chapter 3, he used the term justified. What is justified? It's, it's to measure up to a standard. And in Galatians, Paul's talking about the justification of God, meeting God's standard of perfect righteousness. That justification is our salvation. Well, in this passage, instead of referring to justification, Paul refers to the Spirit. When you are saved, at the moment of your salvation, justification is not the only gift you receive from God. You also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
as church age, new covenant believers, when we are saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. You have God living in you at the moment of your salvation. It's actually the Holy Spirit who affects salvation in your life. Look at Titus 3. Paul says, he saved us. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It, it is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who comes upon you at the moment of your salvation and cleanses you of all sin and causes you to be regenerated. That's, that's a fancy term for being made alive, being reborn. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that all of us are born onto this planet dead in our sins and trespasses. We are spiritually dead, separated from God. But at the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and causes us to be reborn, to be made alive. Okay, Paul will talk a great deal more about the Holy Spirit in chapter 5. We'll see a lot later this semester about the Spirit. For now, the key is to see that the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, is just like the gift of justification. He comes at the moment of your salvation. Okay, uh, this audience has already received the Holy Spirit. You see that clearly from verse 2. It assumes that they've already received the gift of the Spirit. Remember, the Galatians, these are believers. Okay, but they're believers who aren't doing real well. In fact, they're believers who are doing very poorly in their spiritual life. Paul is very, very concerned about them. That's why he uses the, the, the very harsh terms here. Notice he calls them twice foolish Foolish doesn't mean that you lack intellect or knowledge. It means that there is something, there's truth staring you in the face and you choose to ignore it. Foolish means that that you see truth, but you choose to reject it and believe a lie instead. Now, why are these Galatian believers acting foolishly? What has made them foolish? Well, Paul says it's because they have been bewitched. It's actually a really interesting verb. Um, In ancient Greek, it means to be led astray by an evil eye. It's talking about skillful, crafty deception. Uh, The New English translation uh, translates this verb, who has cast a spell on you? That's the idea. They've been deceived. They've been led astray by these crafty false teachers, the Judaizers. Remember, we've talked about these guys this semester. These are Jewish believers who've come in. They've followed Paul's steps into Galatia, they've gone back into these churches that he planted, and they're telling them, hey, Paul only gave you half of the gospel. He, he gave you faith, and that was a good start. But if you really want to be saved, and if you want to be a full member of this church, you must also obey the Jewish law. That's what they're teaching to Paul's converts. It's really concerning to Paul. Their false teaching has raised two issues, two questions that will dominate the whole rest of the book of Galatians. We'll spend the whole rest of the semester answering these two questions. You see them in verses 2 and 3. The first question, verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, remember the gift of the Spirit that comes at the moment of our salvation. So what Paul's really asking in verse 2 is it, how is it we are saved? Is it by faith or by works? The second question is verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Perfected means to be brought to maturity. The second question that Paul is asking is, how are we spiritually matured, by faith or by works? These are the two questions that dominate the book of Galatians. You can really boil them down to two fancy theological terms. First question, verse 2, is about justification. 
being declared right with God, righteous in the sight of God. Does justification come by faith or by works? We've already been talking about that a lot this semester. Paul will continue to talk about that. The second question, verse three, is about the next step in our spiritual lives, what we call sanctification, growing to be more spiritually mature, growing in holiness and in righteousness, growing to become like Jesus Christ. Do we grow in our Christian lives by faith or by works? That's really what the whole book of Galatians is about. Those two questions, justification and sanctification. Do they come by faith or by works? Now, again, we've already talked some about the first question. Uh, We'll be transitioning to the second question next week. And from that point on, Paul will have a lot to say about sanctification. These two questions really boil down to a choice that all human beings have between two ways of life. Two orientations towards life that all human beings can choose between the way of works and the way of faith. It's two different mindsets that we have towards our our life, the way of works or the way of faith. The way of works says that I will rely upon my works, upon my good deeds, upon my church attendance, upon my merit to earn me points with God. I look good to God through what I do. Now, this can be for justification. People are trying to earn justification, earn salvation by what they do. We know many unbelievers who are doing that. But it also can be for sanctification. Many believers who've trusted in the gospel have reverted to the way of works. They believe that they grow, that they earn more of God's love, more of God's respect through what they do. That's the way of works. Anytime that we think that God loves us more if we do good things or that God loves us less if we do bad things, we're giving into the way of works. We're saying we earn points. We earn favor from God through what we do. That's one way of life. We can depend, rely on what we do to earn us points with God. Fortunately, there's another way of life, the way of faith. Now, one of the most common words you'll see in this passage and throughout the rest of the book of Galatians is faith. It's probably a good time to define what we mean by faith. Faith in the Bible is simply persuasion that something is true and reliable. I like using the word persuasion because it reminds us that faith is based on evidence. Faith is not a blind leap that I take into the dark. Faith is based on evidence. I look at my life. I look at the world. I look at the Bible. I look at other religions. I gather evidence and I become persuaded that the gospel's true. Now, faith isn't equal to proof. We won't know for sure till we get to heaven, but faith is based on evidence. I'd like to illustrate faith. I'm sure many of you have heard this before by uh, looking at a chair. Sitting in a chair is much like exercising faith in the gospel. When I Look at a chair. When I walk up to it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about the chair. I'm going to consider the evidence of the chair. Does this chair, does this particular chair look like it can support me? Well, I walk around it and I look at it and, and I say, yeah, I, I, it looks sturdy to me. It looks reliable to me. So I am persuaded that it can support me. Faith is when I transition off of my legs onto the chair. I'm no longer relying upon my legs to support me. I'm relying upon the chair to support me. That's faith. I'm relying on the chair. Now, notice in this example, what is it that keeps me from falling onto the stage? Is it my faith? No, it's the chair. It's the chair that holds me up. It's the object of my faith that rescues me from falling. If this chair would have been unreliable, if it would have been made of sticks and twigs and, and, and straw, and, and I walked up to it and I, and I said, you know what, I, I have incredible faith that this chair is going to support me. I muster up all my faith. I muster up all my belief. I sit in that weak chair. What's going to happen? I'm going to fall on my rear end because the chair was not reliable. 
Okay, salvation from falling on the floor, just like salvation from hell, is not based on our faith, on the quantity of our faith or the quality of our faith. It's based on the object of our faith, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. It's not our faith that saves us. It's the reliability of Jesus Christ that saves us. A lot of people think, well, you know, what if I'm having a bad day and I don't feel like I have a lot of faith in God? Does that prove I'm not saved or that I lost my salvation? They forget your salvation isn't based on your faith. It's based on your Savior, the object of your faith. Faith is simply what accesses the Savior for you. Okay, so Paul is contrasting two ways of life to us. The way of works that relies upon my efforts, my good works, my church attendance, the things I do to earn points with God, either for justification or sanctification. He contrasts that with the way of faith that relies solely on the work of Christ, not my works, the work of Christ, both for justification and sanctification. To get God's love, to keep God's love, it's not based on what I do, but on the work of Christ. These are the two ways of life that Paul will contrast for the whole rest of the book of Galatians. This is really the big contrast he's working between. He wants us to understand that one is infinitely better than the other, and that the choice that you make has serious consequences. It reminds me when I was a a freshman at A&M, the summer after my freshman year, I went and worked at a camp in the hill country and I ran the the rappelling station. We were uh, sending kids rappelling over a limestone cliff. It was beautiful, this beautiful limestone cliff into a ravine. Um, And and for those of you who don't know much about rappelling, it's really fun and it's actually really, really safe if you trust the rope. If you rely upon the rope and do what this guy's doing, notice how he's leaning back into the rope. He's going to actually keep leaning back till he's almost horizontal. That's how you make it down the cliff safe. You rely upon the rope. Then you have a lot of fun. It's comfortable. It's exciting. It's thrilling if you rely upon the rope. But so many kids at camp weren't willing to rely upon the rope. Instead, they'd walk back to the edge of that cliff and they'd try to walk down on their own feet. They'd try to scale down that wall on their own feet. They're relying on their feet to hold them up. Well, it's a limestone cliff. It's slick with water. At the bottom, it actually goes into a cave. It goes inverted. There's no way you can walk it down on your feet. You're gonna slip at some point. It's so many kids that went face first into that rock because they were relying on their legs to carry them rather than trusting in the rope. That's the same idea. They had two... They had a choice between two options. They could rely in faith upon the rope or they could try to do it themselves with their legs. There was obviously a better option, relying on the rope. Well, Paul will spend the rest of the book of Galatians trying to convince us that the way of faith, relying upon the work of Jesus Christ, both for our justification and our sanctification, is infinitely better than relying on our works. Now, he's going to start this morning, the rest of our passage, by just focusing on the first question, the first issue, that's justification. And he's going to, he's going to say something that he said before. We looked at this the last two weeks, that justification is always by faith alone. But he's going to amass some more evidence for us this morning. He's going to look at the Old Testament. Who better to look at in the Old Testament than Abraham? So that's where he's going to start. Look with me at verse 6. Paul says, even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
Okay, think back to last week when we were comparing Romans to James. When was Abraham justified in God's sight? Genesis 15. Remember, long before he was circumcised, long before he began really obeying God, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham believes it and God looks down and he justifies Abraham. That's actually the quote that Paul has here. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Abraham's justification by faith alone in the sight of God. And and Paul looks at Abraham and he says, you are proof of the fact that justification in the sight of God has always been by faith alone. Whether 4,000 years ago or today, a lot of people look at the Old Testament and they think, well, salvation must have been by works back then. No, it wasn't. Salvation of human beings in the sight of God has always been by faith alone from Adam and Eve all the way to the end of this thing. It's always by faith alone. In fact, Paul tells us in verse 8 that it was always God's intention to justify us, Gentiles, by faith alone. It was part of the Abrahamic covenant that he quotes here. All the nations will be blessed in you. God always intended to join us to Abraham, to bring us into justification by faith alone. It's actually by following Abraham's example of faith that we become his sons. We become sons and daughters of Abraham when we follow his example and rely upon our faith, not our works, to make us right with God. Okay, that's, you, we talked a lot about that last week. Paul's continuing to bring out that idea in this passage, that justification in the sight of God is always by faith alone. But Paul's not done looking at the Old Testament yet. He fast-forwards 500 years to look at the life of Israel under another covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, when they were given the law. Look with me at verse 10. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith." Okay, Paul is contrasting in this passage two different ways of life, the way of works and the way of faith. And he's telling us that Israel in the Old Testament, they were trying to rely upon the way of works and they always found one outcome. Whenever they relied on works to make them right with God, they always found one outcome. We'll understand it if we turn to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 28, that's way to the left in your Bible. Deuteronomy 28. I want to remind you guys, uh, some of you may have missed, we did a sermon on the biblical covenants at the beginning of the semester. It was actually back in August. I want to encourage you, if some of this stuff sounds new, you don't really know what the Abrahamic covenant's about or the Mosaic covenant's about, I want to encourage you, go on our website and listen to the sermon on August 23rd. It's called, What's the Big Idea? An overview of the biblical covenants. If you if you listen to that, it will really help you with the book of Galatians. It will give you an overview for a lot of the stuff that Paul is talking about. In that sermon, we looked at Deuteronomy 28. Read with me starting in verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Now skip down to verse 15. 
But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. In other words, God lays out two options in front of the Israelites. He says, if you obey the law, if you keep all of my statutes, all of my commands, what will happen? Blessing. You will be blessed by God. If you do not obey them all, if you do not perfectly keep my commandments, what will you get instead? Cursing. Okay, what's the problem for Israel? They were always in the wrong side of that equation. They're sinners. They can't keep the law. They're just like us. They blew it. They couldn't keep all the commands of the law, so they were always on the curse side of the equation. Paul's proving to us when you rely upon the way of works, when you rely upon your works to make you right with God, your obedience to the law to make you right with God, it always ends in a curse. None of us can live up to the perfect standard of God. All of us fall short. So if you rely upon your works, on your deeds, on your church attendance to look good in the sight of God, you will fail. There's only one human being who has ever made the way of works work for him. Who was that? Jesus Christ. He's the only one who ever perfectly obeyed the law of God. All the rest of us fall short, so all the rest of us fall under the curse of God when we rely upon the way of works. Fortunately, there's another option. There is the way of faith. Paul tells us very clearly here, when we rely on faith, the outcome is very different. When we rely on faith, what we receive instead of curse is life. That's the point of the quotation from the book of Habakkuk in verse 11. The righteous man by faith shall live. By his faith he shall earn his life. He shall live in this life and in eternity by faith. Okay, when we exercise faith in God, not only do we receive our lives, but we receive the blessing of justification and the blessing of the Spirit, verse 14. But again, what is it that's saving us? What is it that's bringing justification in the Spirit? It's, it's not my faith. I'm not saved by my faith. Again, it's Jesus Christ. That's verse 13. The reason that I am saved, the reason that I am just in the sight of God, that I'm righteous in his sight, isn't based on what I've done. It's based on what Jesus has done. Verse 13 is really significant theologically. It tells us that all of us fall short of God's standard and earn God's curse upon us. This is where Jesus stepped in. He became our curse substitute. He took the curse of God that rested upon us. He took it and put it upon himself and died under its penalty and handed us in exchange his perfect righteousness. And all we have to do to complete that transaction is simply receive it by faith. Simply say, Jesus, I believe you took my curse and died for it. I believe that you give me your righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus stood in our place. He took our curse upon himself and died in our place. So Paul's telling us that for justification, there are two options that you have, and they have incredibly significant consequences, not just on this life, but on the next life. You can rely upon your own works, your good deeds, your church attendance to make you right with God. If you do that, you will fail. It's absolutely certain. You will be condemned by God because you're under his curse if you're relying on what you do to be right with him. Instead, rely upon faith. Rely in faith upon the work of Jesus Christ. If you trust in the works that Jesus did, you are saved. You are justified. You're declared righteous by God now and forever. Okay, that's incredibly good news. The gospel is very, very simple. It simply says, quit trying to do it on your own. Trust in what Jesus has done. Very, very simple. But as we've talked about this semester, in the course of church history, it's often been clouded. It's been muddled. It's been confused. 
Now, for those of you who were here last week, you noticed that I beat up on the Reformers some. Calvin and Luther kind of, kind of beat up on those guys because of disagreements we have over James chapter 2. I don't want you to think that I don't have incredible respect for those men. So this morning, we're going to look at the life of Luther a little bit. I want to demonstrate to you how amazing Martin Luther is, how Martin Luther helped us recover the truth and clarity of the gospel. That by faith alone, we are saved in the sight of God. My purpose in, in sharing the story of Luther with you is, is to help you see how incredibly precious and wonderful and beautiful the truth of the gospel is. We've heard it so much that we take it for granted. We hear it so much. I mean, we, the kids are hearing it in elementary school and Sunday school and, and all the stuff going on this morning. We, we just don't think about it much. We don't appreciate it much. So it's helpful to look at a guy who grew up without the gospel who spent most of his life without the clear gospel and finally God revealed it to him and see how it changed his life. Uh, Martin Luther was born in 1483 in the country of Germany. His dad was a copper miner who saved up his money to send Luther, his son, to law school. Uh, Luther was headed to law school. He was in law school, but God had other plans. When Luther was coming home to visit his parents in the midst of law school, he got caught in a thunderstorm, uh, a violent storm. There was lightning everywhere, and Luther was terrified. He was panicked. He hits the ground. He's really, really scared because his best friend growing up died by being hit by lightning. So Luther is freaking out. He doesn't know what to do, so he prays to the patron saint of miners. He says, help me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. Well, he, he makes it through the storm, and he stays true to his words. Fifteen days later, he becomes a monk. He joins a monastery. His dad's furious. He's frustrated all that money down the drain. But Luther joins the monastery, and he actually becomes an incredibly great monk. Luther was a dedicated monk. He was devoted to monkery. He practiced all the things that monks do, prayer and confession and service and penance. He did it all the time. Luther worked incredibly hard as a monk. He did everything he could to honor God as a monk. He would conclude, if anyone could have gained heaven as a monk, then I would indeed have been among them. He worked incredibly hard as a monk. He excelled above everybody else around him. And yet the harder that Luther worked, the more depressed and fearful he became. The more that Luther tried to please God through his efforts, through his monkery, the more he was convinced that God didn't like him very much. Luther knew that God was holy. Luther knew that the standard God expected was perfect righteousness. And yet the harder that Luther tried, the more he saw that he still fell short. Even on his best days, maybe his actions are pleasing to God, but he's got these thoughts that aren't. Maybe on his very best days, his actions and his thoughts are pleasing to God, but he ends the day and sees all these good works left undone. And he knows to the one who knows good to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. Luther knows that God is going to pour out condemnation and wrath upon sinners, and he knows that that's exactly what he is, a sinner through and through. And so Luther becomes desperate. At this point in his life, he begins going to confession with a priest up to 20 times a day. He begins sleeping on cold concrete floors to punish his body. He's doing everything he can to try to make himself right before God. And yet the more he does, the more desperate he becomes, the more fearful he becomes. He'll say of this time of his life, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. He was convinced God hated him. Every time he thought about God, he saw upon the face of God a look of disappointment. 
No matter what he did, he could not earn the love of God. He was so desperate, he was so anxious and so despairing that his spiritual mentor at the, at the monastery sends him off to go teach theology at a seminary. I'm not sure what that is, send the depressed guy off to go teach people, but he figures, well, we'll give something for Luther to think about. And so Luther goes off at the age of 30 to teach theology at Wittenberg. And for the first time in his life, in preparation for his classes, he begins to open the Bible and read it. Now that sounds crazy, 30 years old, a monk, but they just didn't read the Bible back then. That's just not what they did. So 30 years old, he starts reading the Bible. And as he's reading the Bible, he starts to come across some amazing discoveries. He, he gets to the book of Romans, and, and, and as he's reading through Romans, he sees without a shadow of a doubt, okay, sure enough, all of us are sinners and worthy of the wrath of God. That's the bad news. All of us are worthy of the wrath of God. But then Luther begins to see uh, what pleases God is, is not our righteousness. It's, it's the righteousness of Christ. What makes us right with God is not our works. It's what Jesus did. The righteousness that Paul talks about in Romans isn't my righteousness. Luther finally sees it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. It's not about what I earned before God. It's what Jesus earned. And I get what Jesus did through faith. Through faith, I receive the merits of Christ. The, the righteousness of Christ is credited to me through faith alone. Luther gets to this quote from Habakkuk that's also found in Romans. The righteous man by his faith shall live. Luther realizes I receive life. I receive blessing. I receive God's righteousness as a gift by faith alone. It's not about what I do. It's by faith alone that I become righteous in the sight of God. And for the first time in his life, in his mid-30s, the shackles fall off Luther. His depression falls away as he realizes he is right with God through faith alone. For the first time in his life, he thinks about God and he doesn't see a face of disappointment. He sees a face of love. He sees God beaming in excitement to look at Luther, not because of what Luther has done, but because of what Christ had done. Finally, Luther gives up the struggle of trying to earn day after day righteousness before God. He simply lives in joy and in peace, experiencing the righteousness of Christ. Now, that's so revelatory to Luther. It's so radical to Luther. He can't help teaching it. So in his classes, no matter what they're on, he begins teaching that salvation is by faith alone, that we're righteous because of the righteousness of Christ received by faith alone. And guess what? His students love it because his students were pretty desperate as well. No one's making it by work. So, so they begin to love it. They get excited about it. They begin to spread it around. Throughout that part of Germany, people begin to hear this great news of the gospel. Okay, but then a guy named John Tetzel comes to town. John Tetzel comes and, and, and he is a, a, an official in the medieval Catholic church and he comes to town to raise money for the church by selling something called indulgences. Indulgences was an invention of the Middle Ages. You could give money to the church. You could pay to get grace from God. If you give them money, it brings grace into your life, either for you or for a member of your family who's passed away. John Tetzel loved to say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So give us money and you're good. Give us money and your grandma's good. Well, Luther looks at that and he says, that can't be true. We're not made right with God by giving him money as if we could buy righteousness. We're made right because of what Jesus did. Tetzel was completely contradictory to the gospel. And so Luther writes a tract, 95 statements, 95 theses. He did it in Latin for the faculty of the seminary at Wittenberg. He posted on the door of the church uh, just one problem. At this time in history, we had invented something new in Germany 
called the printing press. So someone grabs those 95 Theses, translates it into German, and prints it. It's spread throughout the world, and all of a sudden the Reformation is born. Reformation took off primarily because of the printing press, because finally the words of this man could go all around the world. And God starts a fire in Europe. He brings the church back to the gospel in Europe. What's interesting to me is that Luther wasn't trying to start a new church with his name on it, Lutheran churches. He wasn't trying to start a reformation. He was simply sharing the wonderful, freeing, joyful news that we are saved, we are righteous in God's sight, not by our works, but by faith in the work of Christ. And that news was so good, the gospel was so powerful and beautiful that it couldn't help take off and spread throughout the world. It actually was, was turned into a battle cry, which was a title for this sermon, sola fide, by faith alone. That's the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. But for Luther, it wasn't exactly a battle cry. It wasn't a political statement. It was an intensely personal statement. For Luther, 30 plus years of despair and hopelessness were lifted and joy was brought into his life by sola fide, by faith alone in the work of Christ. Luther was set free. His life was transformed from despair and hopelessness and ceaseless effort into joy and peace and righteousness before God. Now, the lesson for us is to look at Luther's life. I want to ask you this morning, as you look at Luther's life, can you identify with his early years as a monk? Do you look at Luther's life and does it feel like, man, I, I can identify with that. When I, when I think about God, when I consider God, what I see on his face is disappointment. What I see on his face is anger. What I see on his face is disillusionment because of what I've done. Maybe like Luther, you're, you're trying to make God love you. You're trying to keep the love of God. You're trying to merit the love of God through your works, through your efforts, through your church. Maybe you're here this morning because you hope that it will make God love you. You hope that it will make God accept you. For all of us, there's some lessons to learn from the life of Martin Luther about God's love and salvation. First of all, you can't earn it. There's not a person in this room that can earn the love and salvation of God. What is the cost of God's love and salvation? Perfection. All of us have fallen short. None of us have any hope of ever earning God's love and salvation. That's the bad news. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. It's not possible. No person on the planet can earn it. Good news is it's offered to you freely through the work of Christ. He earned it. Jesus earned it for us. That's why Jesus came to earth. He came to this planet to earn the righteousness of God, to earn the love of God for us. And now he offers it to all human beings freely if they'll simply receive it. That's what faith is. It's saying, I'm gonna quit relying upon my works, upon my efforts to make me right with God. I'm gonna trust in what Jesus did. I'm gonna rest in what Jesus did. I'm gonna rely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what salvation is. If you're here this morning and you've never chosen to do that, you're still resting on your own two legs. You're still trying to do this through your own works, through your own good deeds. My, my news for you is, is quit trying. That's a dead end. You can never earn it. Instead, believe the great news that Jesus has already earned it for you. All you have to do is just receive the gift of salvation that God freely offers you through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for those of us who have trusted in the gospel, who have made that decision, Luther's story applies to us too. If we've believed at some point in the past, then we need to keep believing. We need to grow to believe more and more that we are eternally saved and unconditionally loved by God based on the work of Jesus Christ. 
So many believers, they, they trust in the gospel and then they revert to the way of works. We, we come to believe that God loves us more when we do good things, that he loves us less when we sin. So many believers feel that way. When they sin badly, they look up and they feel like God is disappointed in me. He doesn't like me very much. That's a lie. That's a way of works. The Bible declares that God could not possibly love you more. He loves you infinitely and he loves you unconditionally. What's the definition of unconditional? Without condition. The love of God is without condition. It is absolute for us. There's nothing you've done in the past. There's nothing you'll do today. There's nothing you'll do tomorrow that will ever change the fact that God loves you infinitely. That when he looks at you, there's a smile on his face because he loves you infinitely. So don't try to earn it. Don't try to keep it through the works that you're doing. Your works, your obedience doesn't earn or keep the love of God for you. You are infinitely, eternally, absolutely loved and accepted by God based on what Jesus did. That's why the life of faith, the way of faith is the way we should live. Because Jesus did it. We don't do it. Jesus did it. Now this morning we have the privilege of celebrating the gospel. Celebrating the gospel that Luther fought for, celebrating the gospel we've been talking about for weeks with baptism. In baptism, uh, four of our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning are going to testify to us about what the gospel has done for them. That they have found acceptance by God, that they are eternally loved by God because they've placed their faith in Jesus, not because of what they've done. Now, I'm going to go ahead and ask. We have lots of kids in the foyer. If they'll come on forward, we want to do this as a family thing for all of us this morning. So the kids are going to come sit up here. I've got to switch my mic for a second. If those who who are being baptized, if you guys will come on up at the stage at this point.